This is the Washington Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. School board races are front and center in this year's election, and for good reason. The stakes could not be higher. We know that the vast majority of Americans support an honest public education for our children, even at a time when that education is under assault. So this week, we hear from Washington Superintendent of Public Education, Chris Rakedahl. He spoke recently at a meeting put on by Indivisible Tacoma to talk about the importance of this year's election and why you need to get involved. We are proud to bring in the entirety of that conversation now. Uh, this is an awesome group. Thank you for having me. I'm very, very grateful. And um, just, a, just a gratuitous plug uh, to follow the land acknowledgement. You are in a state that is uh, at least perceived nationally now as one of the top two or three states in the country for building bilingual education programs starting with five-year-olds. So we bring kindergartners in, 48 districts in our state, 140-plus schools. Our goal is to eventually have any family that wants their child to grow up bilingual to do that. The locals pick the language, it's mostly Spanish, but we have a bunch of our tribes, some of our 29 uh, federally recognized tribes are in that program so that their children go to school and they are simultaneously learning their English as we all do and they are learning their native language. And, and the, cool part, <clears throat> the cool part is those traditionally uh, uh, confident English learners who have had no exposure, they are learning the native language. It is truly a two-way dual language, so it's very, very cool which is a great starting point for, my God, I need you all to run for the school board. Uh, <clears throat> this is a big year coming up, as you know. Um, our boards are, are outside of Seattle, our five-member boards. When you think about it, every two years, either two of them are up or three of them are up unless something goes on. So we're about ready to face a big cycle here. Um, and then after that full presidential and statewide cycle, we'll have it again. So every two years, we're really kind of redoing these boards. Um, it's a hard job, 1,477 school board members in the state, they do a really great job representing their local communities and that's what's key is to genuinely bring statewide policy that's 30,000 feet to my office where I put learning standards around it, we wrap budgets around it, technical assistance, but really when all of that hits the local school district, <clears throat> they're making all of the deployment decisions. Are we a five period day, a six period day, a seven period day? Are we gonna organize ourselves as a K-5 or a K-6? Are we gonna have a preschool program? Who are we gonna hire? What's our bell schedule? What curriculum are we adopting? All of the actual decisions about what kids experience in a classroom, that's happening at the school board level. So as you might imagine, as an ally and friend of Indivisible and the great work and quite frankly, the incredible support I've had here and my pro progressive roots, I'm really worried that not enough of us are seeing the school board role as the profound policy place that it ought to be. <clears throat> it has clearly become a national agenda item for our uh, friends in quotes <laughs> on the extreme right to build a national narrative that as you know, isn't just about schools. We are the latest punching bag, but it really is a continuum since the late 70s and probably before, but it really took shape in the late 70s and early 80s that was a total assault on the public sector itself. Their whole goal is how do you vilify the public sector, lower people's trust in it, cities, counties, state government, school boards, hospital districts, you name it, vilify it to the point that people are so cynical that they can fill the vacuum with extreme ideology. You're seeing it in Florida right now. That's a governor who has got a lot of legal authority to do what he's doing. Texas, not as much legal authority of the governor, but their state board of ed actually gets to pick and revise curriculum and pull books right out of individual school districts. 
That kind of ambition is coming to our state and is in our state. Now, we have some statutes that protect a lot of that. We leave curriculum decisions to local districts, so, so nobody in my role or the governor can't swoop into the Tacoma School District and yank books out of the library, as they can do in other states. Um, but there's a lot of authority locally. So even with that, uh, they can make a lot of decisions if we don't get school boards that actually reflect uh, and honor the diversity of our students and the comprehensive learning needs of our students. We cannot let our schools turn into ideological testing grounds for those folks because then they run for the legislature and they run for OSPI and they run for the governor and they run for other things. So um, I don't say that lightly. I've genuinely had a career where I'm obviously very progressive. I was, <laughs> I was the only person in the last 10 years of the legislature to offer a full income tax bill, okay? Um, with a Senate colleague, right? <clears throat> I have never shied away from my progressive roots and with that I can still work with Republicans. I can still work with folks who say at the end of the day we have differences on a lot of things but most of them genuinely want their public schools to be successful. And if you look at the charter vote that happened in our state, um, they tried many times and it failed and ultimately it did pass. If you look at those demographics, it's very interesting because rural Washington did not carry the day. Those are places that have said, we really like our public schools. They often pass their levies at pretty high rates. Now they have a very conservative angle to how they want them deployed, but they're generally supporters of public school. And it was more of a corporatist ideology in the Puget Sound and the suburbs that got that to pass, right? They did the, if we can privatize the system, then we can basically uh, do what they do, which is commoditize it, have the ground leases, right? Make sure their friends are on the boards, make sure that they can resource the textbooks, the materials, and everything else through their private sector partners. So it's, a, it's an interesting thing, and I lead with that because no matter how passionate I get around our values, I will tell you that we work best when we pull as many partners under our tent as we can. And we're never going to agree on abortion, right? I think it should be a constitutional right in this state. They will never agree with that. But we don't need school boards dealing with abortion, <laughs> right? We need them to not do things like absolutely further oppress our students of color by banning curriculum that recognizes the diversity of our state and, and the historic oppression that is in our institutions. We need them to not add to the suicide rate of our LGBTQ youth by simply denying their existence, right? Uh, we've seen bills in our legislature that goes back to ideas like conversion therapy or making illegal some of the counseling supports that, that young people get. So <clears throat> we have a tough we have a tough couple years ahead of us. <laughs> I believe these pendulums swing and I believe they swing back, but only if we're in the fight. Um, and the fight is for real educational opportunity for our kids. Um, it, is not, it is not because we hate another group. That would be antithetical to our democratic values. It's because we don't think their ideas are gonna propel learning and equity the way we think. And, and so we gotta stand up for that and we gotta run. Okay. <clears throat> All of that aside, I will tell you the good news side of what's happening in our state, because we just went through three years of terrible pandemic on the health side, and the pandemic's not over, by the way. Uh, we're still in it. The learning recovery is reaccelerating, so we see it, enrollments are recovering, but a little slow. We see attendance back, but again, students said, oh, I figured out how to learn remotely, and so their attendance, particularly in the middle and high school years, are not as solid as they were pre-pandemic, so that can be challenges. But we are seeing our assessment scores, and I'm gonna talk about tests in a little bit, but we're seeing those increase. We were the only state last year who tested in the fall and the spring. I went to the US Department of Education, met with those officials, said, I don't wanna test in the middle of the pandemic, it's asinine, we need to focus on student engagement and learning. We had a tremendous mental health crisis. 
they said, no, you have to test, it's the federal law, and we said, <clears throat> no, you require us to test every grade band, third through eighth grade, once in middle and or, uh, once in high school. I said, so right in the middle of this crisis, just as we're coming back to in-person learning, let's avoid the tests. And they said, the deal we will cut for you is you will test twice then the next year. <laughs> I said, fine, uh, we will do that. So we did get to assess in the fall and the spring, and we saw math and ELA scores recover and, and start to recover very, very nicely. When kids had that experience with highly qualified educators, they got some of that routine back in their life and some of the anxiety of, is the world gonna end, right? That came with the normalcy of coming back to school. They were sort of able to breathe again. We saw their, their learning recovery. And just recently, National Report, we are a state, many of our districts use what's called Dibbles. It's a reading assessment in early grades. Um, you might be familiar with this back in the day. Uh, we're a part of that cohort and they are seeing K3 reading scores really reaccelerate across the country. So what we said would happen is kind of happening. There was this big disruption. Kids wore a lot of that. And I don't just mean the academics because they're so resilient and their brains are still able to make these powerful connections faster than our old brains do. <laughs> but what they really struggled with was the unknown. Young people are wearing the weight of the world. They are wearing climate change. They are wearing racial injustice. They, in the middle of a pandemic that hasn't happened for 100 years, they weren't sure if they were coming back to school. They weren't sure whose lives were gonna be lost in their family or if their own life was at risk. And we kept trying to say, particularly to those who wanted to use this moment as a reason to pound on public schools and privatize them, we kept saying, you're being really disingenuous because by attacking the public sector and public schools, you are adding to the very anxiety that impacts student attainment, student achievement. And, and many of them don't care, as you know. Some genuinely do, and many of them don't care because if it achieves the purpose of, let's have less trust in schools, let's have families pull out for homeschool and private school, they, that's what they want anyways. They would turn it into a capital marketplace. And as you know, in capitalism, uh, it's got a few good things about it and it's got a lot of bad things. And one of, it, <laughs> one of it is it tests failure and it tolerates failure. If your business doesn't make it and people lose their jobs, that's just the market. And that's their concept on schools. We crank them up, we start them up, and if they fail, no problem. We'll relocate kids and hope they have success in the transitions. Well, we know outside of poverty and outside of students um, experiencing homelessness and, and, and foster youth, the biggest impacted students are those with significant transitions. If they are constantly being moved for whatever the reason, that is a big, big impact. So we know this privatization thing in public ed is very, very harmful for kids. But the learning recovery is underway. It's very, very hopeful. Um, it will continue to take some time. Um, we still see a lot of behavior challenges in school. You had kids who were out for really a year and a half. Um, you combine that with the fact that <laughs> this is becoming the most powerful content provider in their lives. So when they see the behaviors of social media, they think that's the norm, especially if they've grown up with this very, very young, because their brains are still forming what it means to create decisions in their life and consequences of that. And there are no consequences when you're in a shoot 'em up video game and you kill a thousand people and you die, you respawn and you keep shooting more people, right? I mean, that's some of the mentality. And the bullying that happens on social media and the desensitization, right? Oh, I just turn that off and I ignore it and then they come back to it later. That's not real life. When you hurt a friend's feeling in a third grade classroom, that friend feels that pain. So the kind of restorative work that we're trying to do, the SEL work that we're doing, which again has been co-opted by the right to tell you it's bad, <laughs> Social emotional learning, you all went through it. Every single one of you, and you didn't know it was called that at the time because we didn't call it that at the time. We said things like character education. We talked about civility, right? We talked about really being a good human being. That's what it is. 
and we have learning standards in kindergarten that start with things like, hey, safe touch. We don't touch other people who don't want to, and if you feel like you're being inappropriately contacted, let a, a safe adult know this is part of our sexual health ed curriculum, of course, which turned into the OSPI race <laughs> two and a half years ago. In kindergarten, it's as simple as touch. And by third or fourth grade, it's the empathy of how you can help a friend or when you see a friend in trouble, right? Or it might be how to control your emotions to avoid physical uh, conflict. By high school, we're teaching kids to intervene when they've got a peer that is at risk of sexual assault, right? We're, we're teaching bystander training. We're making them active participants in what it means to be a better society and better to each other. That's SEL. We did this as kids. We didn't have a label for it. It was part of learning math and science. We learned to be good people. That was part of that relationship with parents and schools. That's what we're talking about. And now you've got groups who come along and they vilify that and they merge that with sex ed and they merge that with critical race theory, which I want to talk about. And the picture they want to paint is that our schools are indoctrination zones where kids are no longer learning real content. They're learning some leftist socialist agenda. I mean, how many times have you heard about this, right? I was hoping you were going to say none because you don't watch Fox News, but you apparently heard about this. Uh, I go to school board. <laughs> yeah. So our job is to have to come back with what it is and what it isn't. I would encourage you to go to the OSPI website. We have all kinds of learning standards identified to talk about what it is and isn't, whether it's sexual health ed, whether it's SEL, whether it's um, issues of race and diversity. I want to hit this CRT question head on because, again, it's one of those labels that's now being used and weaponized. The national strategy uh, by Fox and Friends is really to use that as one of the messaging tools to vilify schools. The reason it's so difficult is we don't actually teach CRT. If I'm being objective about this, that is a law school course uh, in some places. We have always, if we're doing it right though, we have always had curriculum, right? And we've had learning objectives that teach young people the history of racism and all the isms and then how that is still persistent today. What are the consequences of that today? And when you study those things, you realize our banking system is not where it needs to be. Our housing is not where it needs to be. Our schools, how we select students for admissions in higher ed. You can go down the list and you realize there are still institutional systems. There are still laws and frameworks and practices and organizations who even without purposeful intent are carrying the history of our racism, carrying the history of our sexism. That is what CRT really is. It's just we don't teach some theoretical construct about that, and we don't spend a lot of time on, on it as the concept of CRT. But for the history of our public ed system, we have been trying to put in the standards a recognition of race and how that has impacted us and how we carry that with us. And you all did that. You studied slavery in school. You studied Jim Crow. You studied these things. And no one was pounding on us at the time until it became so politically popular to do it that it furthered this privatization agenda. So again, go to our website. We have lots of allied groups as well on this work. I would encourage you to, to do that. If you're thinking about running for school board or supporting candidates, Help them get the objective information to speak to this work. Um, also study all the positives of school, right? You're a state that's got a bilingual ed program that's taking off. We're going to be one of the first states to feed every damn kid, even though this legislature isn't going fast enough for me right now, right? But we put this out there. We've got, 
we've got 800,000 kids with access to meals and we're down to the last 300,000 and they're gonna get another 100,000 or so this, this cycle, so we're making progress on this. This is extremely popular, by the way, even in middle class and conservative families because they're thinking, don't I deserve a tax break? If I have two kids in school, that's $3,500 a year out of pocket for meals and the rest of the world just, just feeds kids. These are things that pull us together, right? And when I talk about bilingual ed, this is not the deficit narrative of, of immigrant child comes here, speaks Spanish, let's starve them of math and science until they learn enough English. This is two-way dual language. We're from age five, English learners and Spanish learners or Russian learners or native languages or Cantonese, they're in class together. And when I talk about this in conservative or, or liberal communities, they're like, yeah, I want my kid to be like bilingual because I know the opportunity economically. That's one of those things we want our candidates talking about, is the hope of feeding kids, the hope of bilingualism, right? The hope of moving a system to grad pathways. So a student says, I'm not headed to UW Tacoma. I really want to be an apprentice. I want to be an electrician, a sheet metal worker. I want to drive a forklift. We say, great. Those are critical thinking skills. There's math and science reasoning in there. There's communication in there. It isn't about fitting every kid into the academic box. It's about pathways. Your state's leading in that. We have people who come to the state to say, how do we build that pathwork framework and still ensure all those math standards, ELA and science standards? Your state's a part of that. So there's so much for our candidates and for our values to lead with that bring the other side with us when they actually hear about it. But in our silence, that void is filled with the demonization of critical race theory, right? And we're all pedophiles, by the way. That's what they yeah. say. That, that is the label, that is the go-to label of anything that is not functioning in the criminal justice system, in the education system, you name it. So we're up against powerful vocabulary that, that, that is impactful to people unless they can backfill that with, they, this doesn't seem right. And that's what I faced two and a half years ago, right? This candidate who attacked, vilified, what they didn't want was this particular learning standard. And I always said, I get that. Like, that's who you are. They turn it into a dehumanizing personal attack. And, and, and I know this sounds a little weird, and I'm so grateful they did, and we won. Because, well, this thing goes to the voters, and then we showed the state of Washington as the first state in the United States of America who ever had their sex ed law go to the ballot. We passed it by more than 10 points. We had middle of the road, middle class and conservative families say secretly like, I know we need that. I was the victim of sexual abuse and if I had known that in school and if I had understood that and bystander training had occurred, it would have been different for me. We heard that from everyone. So we were really confident in the initiative. I was less confident whether I'd survive because they were beating me up. But the reason I say I'm grateful is we just showed the playbook for what it means to stand up for our values, bring it straight to the people. And they said, we're with you. When you explain the value to young people and it doesn't just become a personal war, right? You never have to attack the, the, the humanity of the other candidate. You have to attack their ideas. When we did that, we won with folks. Um, they embrace it. It gave us momentum to start talking about investing in more. So last year, our legislature put in another 250 million in counselors, nurses, school psychs, mental health, right? So more prototypical building those, now it's hard to find these people, <laughs> it's a tough labor market, but, but that's the kind of thing that gave us the momentum to double down and say, we think the people of this state really want this stuff and they understand the value for their kids. So last, uh, well, three Tuesdays ago or whatever, we just passed our levies at a 92% rate in this state. 
So for all of the people hate public ed and they're all bailing out and all of that, 92% passage from the most conservative communities to the most progressive communities. And the ones we didn't pass in like three of the six of them, they were within five points. And we'll pick them up here uh, probably, probably in, the, in the November cycle, but some might run them a little bit earlier. I say all that to you to say you live in a pretty amazing state, but it got here because of progressives, right? but respectfully understanding that we have conservative communities and when we talk to them about real issues, they're there because they want their kids to have those opportunities. They want them fed, they want great curriculum, they want pathways, they want bilingual learning, they want supports, they want school nurses, school psychs. When you teach them that you know, this SEL thing is really about their kid having social emotional control and not being bullied and they're like, I'm for that, you say, great. You then are a huge fan of SEL. And they say, it can't be, because Tucker Carlson told me to be afraid of that. <laughs> but that's what we get to do. Um, let's talk testing real fast. I said I want to get back to this. <clears throat> Our test scores are improving, but if you noticed me, and I, I know a lot of you, I've never spent a lot of time on standardized exams. <clears throat> um, if there's one thing, I, I'm proud of a lot of things. If there's one thing I'm proud, like, with too much ego about, uh, <laughs> it's that for... Going back to my time in the legislature in 2011, I have been beating up the idea that you can measure a child because of a standardized exam, right? It's a terrible concept. Yeah. Even conservatives now are coming along saying, <clears throat> you're right, my child is more than an exam. We need it as a benchmark. We wanna know whether the school system's improving at large. We can do that with sampling methodologies, but taking every kid, third through eighth grade, through math and ELA, three times in science, high school exams, we are essentially telling kids that we build you up and we determine your academic worth by, by a test. And we've deconstructed that. We've de-linked the exam from graduation in our state. Um, we still have to do them because the feds require them. But when people say kids are failing, I want you to genuinely hear me when I tell you they are not failing in mass. They are succeeding. What we focus on is growth. Does a third grader have a year's more content knowledge and skills and abilities a year later? That is the kind of growth we want. Where kids start in struggle, and we do have about 50% of our kids who we say are not kindergarten ready. We, be, we, we, we look at six benchmarks. There's, you know them, they're reading and they're writing and they're mathematics, quantitative reading, but physical health and again, social emotional. We assess these students through an observational assessment and we note that about half of the kids don't come in with all six of those benchmarks. We even get those kids obviously moving because by the time they're in high school, right, they're doing college level work by the sophomore year, half of them in math, and 80% of them are, are, are passing, and I hate that phrase, we'll talk. 80% of them are meeting benchmark in ELA, English Language Arts, by their sophomore year so that they're college ready without any remedial, remediation. It's extraordinary. We're almost always in the top 15 nationally and the only assessment that's common amongst the states called the National Assessment of Educational Progress. All the states took a little dip in the last year or two. Uh, we're recovering, as is the country, but we're almost always in the top 15 by the eighth grade. We start with a lot of students who need it, but by eighth grade, we're pretty, pretty darn good. I'm giving you that because the easiest thing the other side is telling us these days, and what we struggle with is so many kids are failing because they point to a test, there's this benchmark that's been established and they claim anyone below that benchmark is failing. Okay, I'm not gonna make you raise your hands, but I'm gonna give you an analogy. If you were like me, you put on a COVID-30, okay? 70% <laughs> of Americans do not meet benchmark for weight, okay? In the conservative right-wing privatization world, 70% of us are failing in health. Our health is failing. 
right? They would get rid of doctors under that logic. They would get rid of mental health supports, right? <laughs> Forget exercise. It's clearly not working in America. We need to privatize this. You need more pills, right? And you need more fast fixes. Half of those 70% are considered obese. <clears throat> and, I, and I don't make that a point about weight. I make that a point about those people are still amazing parents. They're great workers. They have ambitions and dreams. How I look physically doesn't determine everything about me, but it is one thing we want to be concerned about in terms of our overall health, right? We want to be aware of that. <clears throat> We've got folks who look at a standardized assessment, a 4-3-2-1 assessment, and they say the student doesn't meet benchmark, they're all failing. And nothing could be further from the truth. And here's the hard part about it. If you all had to take this, if I had to take this when I was of school age, the data would be about the same. And somehow you all made it. <laughs> somehow you graduated from high school. And somehow we have one of the highest college going rates in the United States in this state. And somehow we built one of the top five economies in the United States. And we're still not just knowledge economy, we're still manufacturing in aerospace, we still have robust agriculture. This is a state doing a lot of amazing things, but if you listen to the narrative that says our worth is only a function of test scores, you'd say public ed is totally wiped out. And I will remind you that private schools don't have to take these exams. Now, I am not an anti-private school person. That is their choice. I don't want my tax dollars ever being used there, but that is a choice of families. <clears throat> it is such an insincere narrative, though, to say, here's the benchmark, and all these kids are failing. And then when we say, well, tell us about these alternatives you want, they say, well, they're not required to test. That is the private sector that they want, right? That is the private sector they want. So you've got questions. I've got answers. Uh, when they're really hard, I'm going to turn it over to these two, and they can answer them. Uh, <laughs> But I do want you to be as candid as you want to be in assessment or in, in, in questions. I will tell you that my job as state superintendent is get the money out, focus on learning standards, give technical assistance, provide the data and the research, and then occasionally when a school district steps in it, we go help them out. We are not the team that makes decisions at the local level. So oftentimes I'll get like, why did my school district do this and this? And I will probably punt on that and say, you need to get to your school board right after you file to run for school board. And that'll do it for this week. The executive producer of the show is Kat Pipkin. If you would like to see a video version of this podcast, head to facebook.com slash indivisible podcast. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Lori Kowal. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. I'm Stephen Cox, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.